Good morning, everyone. Uh, as, a, as a plenary session, uh, this is going to be a little bit more uh, academic than some of the things that we saw yesterday. And uh, despite it being academic, there's something in it for everyone. So without further ado, let me go through some of the things that we have to do, which is uh, the first disclaimer. And this disclaimer is that there's, there's no known conflict of interest, except, of course, the fact that I am a Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, that, of course, influences all of my decisions and filters my thoughts. Okay. There's another disclaimer, uh, and this is a few things that we need to get straight before we move on, and that is that there's no salvation by works. Okay, there's no salvation by health habits, there's no salvation by veggie burger, there's no salvation by exercise or sleep or any of those things. There's no salvation by any of those things. There's only salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, lest anyone should boast. Okay, God speaks... The question that we're going to try to answer is, can we hear what he's saying? I'll start off with a case. And uh, it's an experiment that I want you to engage in. It goes like this. You happen to be uh, at a function with people that you have never met before. And I am there too. And I see you, I meet you, and I introduce you to somebody whom you have never spoken to before. I take out $1,000 in $100 bills. And you can see from the screen, that's the rendition of it. Now, I give it to the person who you just met. We'll call him John. I give it to John, and I say, John, this is for the two of you. You decide how you're going to divide these $1,000. There is a catch, however. If you can't agree on how to, how to distribute it, nobody gets anything. I keep the $1,000. All right? So, now, here are two scenarios. John can give you $100 and keep $900. Or he can split it any other way. Even he keeps five and he gives you 500 but you have to decide which one you're going to take and which, whether this is uh, something that is going to be reasonable for you to do or not do. If you accept it, that's the end of the deal. If you don't accept it, nobody gets anything. I keep my $1,000. How would you choose? And what would influence your choice? You agree? You keep what you get. You disagree, no one gets anything. So now, COVID-19. We heard quite a bit yesterday when uh, Brian was talking at, at the introduction of his talk about what's going on with COVID. And I just want to add uh, a few items to that, to round things off. COVID-19, the era of COVID-19 is an era of confusion. You know, we have thought about uh, religious confusion and things like that, but it's, a, it's an era of just plain old confusion. Nobody knows what to believe when you're here. You don't know whether information is good information, bad information, disinformation, or what, okay? It's a time of conflict. It's a time of concern. It's a time of certainty of uncertainty. Most people uh, uh, have a problem with the fact that they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But mind you, no one knew what was going to happen tomorrow anyway, but we felt as if we knew what was going to happen tomorrow. But now we know for sure we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, it's also a time of conspiracy theories. They abound. It's also a time for uh, conscious social reform and a community disruption. We have seen this all around in just about every kind of community, every configuration of community, we have uh, this issue. But in the midst of this crisis, we need to understand that crisis actually means, on the one hand, from the Chinese character, danger and opportunity. And, and maybe there's some opportunities here in the midst of the danger that we are facing uh, that might be of, of help to us. So who is affected by COVID-19? The short answer is everyone. It's all around the world. Everybody, in some way or another, 
has been affected by it. You don't have to be infected to be affected. Healthcare workers on the forefront all over the world in the kind of work that we do at the General Conference, we talk to people from all around the world. And the healthcare workers are at the forefront of the brunt of this uh, problem with COVID-19. Uh, we've had uh, many physicians, Adventist physicians and other healthcare workers who have died because of exposure to COVID-19 in the, in the line of duty, helping others. And then, of course, there are caregivers of another stripe, caregivers in families. And uh, there's research now looking at what happens to the caregivers in families, and they are affected too uh, in different ways. Of course, uh, people who happen to be younger, female, uh, who have uh, smaller uh, places, of uh, smaller dwellings, uh, these people are more affected by the problem. If you lose your job, you're more affected uh, by the situation as well. But this brings us to the idea of health and wellness and sickness. We know that there are determinants of health and wellness and determinants of sickness. And we know that there are social determinants. But uh, about 40% of the determinants of health and wellness happen to be related to the lifestyle and the choices that we make. So while there are some things that we may not be able to change, there are certainly some things that we may be able to change. I, I won't say that we always can change them, but we may be able to change them. And uh, this is a, a 5D model of well-being. Of course, there are some that go up to 9 or 10 or 12 different, uh, different dimensions. This one is a simplified uh, yet robust model looking at the body, the physical uh, aspects of things, the mind or the thinking aspects of things. And of course, the mind also looking at uh, mood and, and feelings that we might have, the emotional uh, part of things. So we have the cognitive and we have the emotional. We also have uh, the issue of relationships and the social aspect of, uh, of health and the social aspect of well-being that includes not just the relationship that we have with one another, but also the relationship that we have with things and the relationship that we have with the uh, animate uh, parts of creation, including, of course, the inanimate environment. And then we have the part that is the spiritual aspect of things. And this spiritual aspect has to do with the identity, uh, who we are and whose we are. It also has to do with worship because this is a vertical relationship that we have uh, with our creator. And uh, it is the aspect of us that regardless of, of who we read, uh, who has been talking about uh, religion and spirituality and things like that from a medical or health standpoint, we talk about transcendence. This, this transcends just what we can see and what we, what we can experience in our physical uh, selves. We, we have this something extra in the transcendence. Now, what do people say that they want? From the research, uh, investigations, looking and the interviews that have been uh, uh, done in the United States asking people what they want. People want normalcy. They want to return to what is normal. Now, what's interesting is that people were complaining before COVID, <laughs> but now we want to go back to that. In other words, it was better before than it is now, and we want to go back to what we, would, what we didn't like before anyway. You know, human beings, we're interesting creatures, right? Uh, people want solutions. They don't just want talk, they want solutions. Uh, they want safety and security. They want to, to be certain. And, you know, uh, as we talked about before, the only certain thing is that we're uncertain, all right? And, uh, of course, they don't want to be afraid. They don't want to have fear about the unknown. They want to have fear about the known either. And people have been clamoring for community, for connection and connectedness again. And, of course, they want to have peace, peace of mind, and they want to have peace in the world. These are things that people are clamoring for. Now, once we start talking about peace, we get into another realm of things, and the Hebrew uh, word that is usually translated peace in the Old Testament is the word shalom. But shalom has much more to do with uh, our total health and our total well-being than just peace. Shalom is actually uh, the best word, the best Hebrew word that, that encapsulates the idea of health. It, is, it means 
peace, yes, but it means total health. It means completeness, not brokenness. It means that, uh, that we're whole, we're made whole again. And God wants us to have this wholeness, which, of course, will only happen when he returns to complete the job. But while we're here, there are things that we can do moving in that direction. Uh, shalom deals with wellness. It deals uh, with harmony, things working in harmony with each other. It means that all that is good is ours. When, when the Hebrews uh, would, would, would greet one another, and we say they would uh, give their salutation, which is health, right? Salute uh, for health. When they would greet one another, they used the term shalom, which didn't just mean peace be unto you, but it meant everything that is good, be it yours. And this is what God wants for us, everything to be good. Things functioning, things acting the way they were designed to act. God wants us to be restored and he wants to give us this shalom. So, people in search of this shalom people in search of peace and people in search of normalcy have been looking at the internet to try to find answers. And I have now a list of things, uh, they, they broke it down by country, uh, trying to see what people are searching for. And you might be surprised at some of the things that they're searching for. Well, one of the things, of course, it's obvious that they should be looking for masks, right? Uh, this has become a, a political football in whether you mask up or you don't mask up and what the uh, what the benefit of, of using a mask would be and which kind of mask, all these different things. And of course, the science behind it, I didn't put in those slides, uh, of, of looking at what happens when you wear a mask and the ability or inability to transmit uh, droplets and aerosols uh, based on the, on the quality and, uh, and the fit of the mask that you might be using. But masks, people in different countries are looking at masks. They're also looking at cutting hair, believe it or not, okay? Uh, uh, there was a big spike in New York when there was the lockdown, uh, so much so that when, uh, when the curfews and so on were lifted, I was told that in New York City, uh, you could get a haircut for about $500 to $1,000, okay? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous uh, from my point of view, but, you know, I, I guess uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't complain, right? <laughs> Uh, I didn't have that much to cut. Nonetheless, uh, imagine people are going on YouTube and looking to find out how to cut hair, something that, that, that should be so easy uh, for us to do. And then, of course, they were looking at how to cook. Now, this should, this should be already giving us some idea about some of the things that we have been talking about as Seventh-day Adventists in our health uh, ministry to people. You know, when we were in Mexico, uh, down south in Mexico, cutting hair was part of uh, the, the outreach that we would do. We'd go to a community and we'd cut people's hair. And there were youngsters who would come and get uh, uh, their hair cut and uh, we'd also do the deworming and uh, uh, you know, getting rid of ticks and things like that. But cutting hair and of course cooking schools, teaching how to, how to cook. Um, people became interested in this during the, the lockdown. Uh, and in YouTube, look at the various countries, uh, Brazil, Germany, Italy, uh, the United States, there was a big spike in the United States. All the eating out had stopped, so people now had to, had to try to find a way to cook to be able to get things done. And then family gardens and growing your own food. You've heard about that before. Well, people were looking at this, and, and this was, there was a, a spike in, uh, and a growing interest in people trying to, to find out how they could get uh, to grow their own food. Now, it's not something that you can do tonight for tomorrow. Okay, so this is part of the, of the situation. Health is not just something that you do today for tomorrow. Health is something that, you know, we persist and, and we keep on with, with good habits as best as we can and we grow. And health is something that is progressive. Okay, so uh, to, to just say I'm going to grow a garden today, well, uh, that just doesn't happen that way. You can't cram for, uh, for growing a garden. And then exercise. Uh, and, you know, you can't get fit overnight. You have, you have to do things over time before you would, you would actually get fit. And so people were looking for workouts to do at home. And, of course, you can look at all the videos that you want. If you don't practice it, you won't get anywhere. Uh, uh, I know. I'm a, I'm, I know. <laughs> okay. And then they were looking at connection. 
And uh, they were looking at keywords like with me. People wanted to, to be connected. Imagine uh, people at, at home, uh, in, in the past, they, they, you know, you go to work in the morning and you come home late at night and uh, you're not at home with each other, you know, families that, that haven't been together and now you're, you're forced to be together and uh, initially that put a lot of stress on people because they weren't accustomed to being at home with their loved ones. Well, you know, sometimes it sounded as if loved ones was not the right way to characterize those relationships, but... This is what uh, we found. And as time went on, people, became, people started to clamor for being able to be connected in other ways as well. Just the, you know, the digital salute was, was not enough, okay? But surprise, surprise, people started to look at spiritual issues. They were looking at not just spirituality, but also religious services and trying to, uh, to, to work with this, so uh, churches and uh, and itinerant preachers and whatnot would, would put their platform up uh, on on the internet, and now people were getting access. People who probably wouldn't come into a church, right now from home, from the safety at home, they don't have to walk in and talk to anybody. They they can look and see and they can hear what you're saying about the truth or not truth. This was an important development. The Telegraph published this. The pandemic is prompting a surge in interest in prayer. This is what Google uh, had reported and the Telegraph picked it up. Prayer. Prayer. The World Health Organization looked at the issue of prayer as well. <laughs> you know... They say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, there were no atheists during the lockdown either, it seems. People became interested in prayer. So the spiritual aspect of wellness, the spiritual aspect of wholeness, faith and religion and spirituality was becoming much more real to people. It was becoming touchable, close at hand. But now, there's lots of research looking at spirituality and health. Harold Koenig at Duke has done a lot of research and has published quite a bit on, on these topics. And he cataloged in one of his books, in the Handbook of Spirituality and Health, uh, he looks at, at the, uh, the amount of research that has been done over the last 20 years, and you'll see that there's a rising uh, number of uh, investigations and research looking at spirituality and health, and uh, that continues to grow, okay? They've looked at spirituality and its relationship with different kinds of factors uh, in health. In this particular uh, study, they were looking at spirituality as a predictor of cardiovascular health and the cardiovascular responses to stress in young adult women. But, you know, young adult and women uh, isn't all. They were looking at spirituality and health outcomes in the elderly, and they found a positive correlation. Spirituality uh, was associated with, by and large, uh, an improvement in health outcomes in the elderly. They looked at spirituality and religiosity and even physiologic markers, and what they found was that there are some blood factors that are uh, improved when people had a spiritual and uh, a religious experience. The overwhelming evidence is that religious belief and religious practices uh, overall, uh, with a few uh, important exceptions, which I'll talk about, lead to better than average health and well-being and a higher than average degree of pro-sociality. In other words, people tend to be more sociable generally, and people happen to, to live longer and live better uh, when they have a spiritual, uh, growing spiritual life as opposed to people who don't have. But some of the exceptions might, uh, might be of interest to you. Looking at religiosity and prejudice, what we find is that people who have a high degree of, of extrinsic uh, religiosity, that is, they have, they have something that is very imposing on them, they tend to be more prejudiced against other people. So bigotry is part of, uh, of the negative, if you will, 
of very strong religious uh, uh, convictions because people may tend, depending on which religion we're talking about, may tend to be more exclusive. They see this as the inner circle. They see this as a club. They see it as an exclusive club. So we have to be careful about that. This is looking at, uh, in, in Europe, religious, uh, uh, religiosity and prejudice against ethnic minorities in Europe, looking at 37 different countries, and they found the same kind of pattern. Okay. Uh, part of the issue looking at, at health is that depending on your religious approach and your spiritual approach, if you happen to have a religious system that is very domineering, if it's guilt-producing, uh, if we have a picture of God as a severe taskmaster who is unforgiving and severe and just waiting to catch you doing something wrong, uh, where forgiveness isn't part of the context of your religious experience, these individuals actually have an increased risk of stress-related diseases, increased risk of, of, uh, of high blood pressure, increased risk of stroke, increased all-cause mortality, and, uh, of course, increased risk of heart disease. Okay, so, so just to say someone is religious does not mean that this translates into better health because depending on their perception of what that religious practice might be and how they exercise their religious practice uh, personally can have a very definite negative effect on, on some people. So these are, are part of the exceptions. And some of this works through our hormones. As a matter of fact, all of it works through the chemistry in our bodies. It works through our biochemistry. And this is where we, we have been uh, looking most importantly. Research looking at this, uh, as I mentioned, is growing. And from this slide, you can see there are books and, uh, and, and this is just like the, the tip of the iceberg. There's just so much looking at spirituality and health. And people coming up with uh, different models and different ideas as to how things work. This is a, a, a beautiful, even though complex, uh, slide. This is uh, one that has developed over time by Harold Koenig. Uh, looking at, uh, on the left, we look at uh, spiritual and, and uh, religious activity. And going all the way on the right, we're looking at mental health whether positive or negative mental health outcomes. And we have all of the other issues happening in, in between. We have religious uh, practices uh, just towards the left of the screen. And then we have uh, some of the attributes of a good, healthy spiritual life or the absence of a healthy spiritual life. And then we have some of the consequences on the other side. We, we, we can look at, at this as well uh, uh, with a different model, and this other model uh, is a little bit uh, more uh, simplified, but we see, again, religion and spirituality on the left, and we go all the way to the right, and we see uh, improved physical health, and we see longevity, and in between, we see the social connectedness, the support, and all of the things that we know, we, and, and the mental health issues, which become very important, and then we see that these things are modulated by the immune function, by the, uh, by the hormones, the endocrine system, the incretin system, and all of the uh, growth factors and the multiplicity of, of, uh, of small and large chemicals that make up our metabolic soup. These things are all involved because whatever we do actually will change us biochemically, and that change biochemically will have an effect on the other parts of the system and the other parts of the body. But now, while much of the research has looked at spirituality and its relationship with physical health, my question is, is it possible that some of the physical things that we do may actually affect our spiritual experience, our spiritual health? And that is what I'm going to try to uh, elucidate in the next few slides. Let's go back to this model. If we look at the body, the physical thing, at the, at the peak, the, the top of this, of this slide, you know that nothing happens in a human being's life except there's a body involved, all right? So we, we are stewards of our bodies. This is a very important issue. No body, no person, okay? No body, no person. Uh, I had a slide which I took out. It was uh, a, a corpse. I didn't think I wanted to just show you a corpse. But, you know, 
if nobody is home, okay, because it's just a corpse, right, the Bible tells us that when a person dies, what happens, right? He knows nothing, right? Uh, the breath goes back to God, right? His character is, is stored on God's hard drive, okay? So God knows who that person was. As a matter of fact, we remember the person. We remember their character and their characteristics, okay? But that person is no longer a person because we have a formula. God used a formula to describe how we, how we are born, and I'll show you a little bit later how we were created. But now, these things, if we were to look at our, at our spiritual life and a spiritual worldview, you would see that this spiritual life affects everything else. It, it affects our freedom, our, regul- our self-regulation, right, very important, our specific choices. It may influence our power to overcome. We believe that God gives us the power to will and to do his good pleasure. He gives us the power to make changes uh, in our lives, and he is able to change us if we would submit to him. It also affects our attitudes and our relationship with, with other people, which makes it interesting because some of the researchers looking at the issue of religiosity and uh, some of the negative aspects of religiosity try to make a distinction between intrinsic religiosity or intrinsic spiritual uh, attributes and this extrinsic, you know, forced upon kind of uh, idea. And they believe that intrinsic spirituality, intrinsic religiosity, where somebody has a heart conversion, and that person now develops some of the characteristics of the God that they serve, that these individuals have the positive health benefits. And the others with the extrinsic forced uh, kind of activity, they tend to have negative health benefits. Well, it's not benefits, negative health consequences. Now, what if I were to tell you that what you eat, what you had for breakfast this morning, may actually have an impact on the decisions that you're going to make. So let's go back to case one. This was part of an actual study. It wasn't $1,000. I don't remember exactly how much money it was uh, involved, but I thought $1,000 sounded pretty good. But the, the crux of the experiment is exactly the same. How would you decide, and what would influence your decision? Will you take something that is obviously against you? Or... Will you stand for the principle of the thing and say, if you can't do it fairly, nobody gets anything? Well, you agree to take it, or you you persist in making sure that it's fair. Do you know that the research found that depending on what you had for breakfast made a difference in whether you would accept what might be perceived as being unfair or you would stand out for what is right in your perception? What you had for breakfast and how long ago you had that meal. Now, the fact that we eat three meals a day and the constituents of those meals uh, can influence the kinds of decisions that we make two to three hours later, this should give us all pause. I don't have these slides here, but but, uh, it has been shown that it even influences financial decisions, even though the, the experiment sounded like a financial thing. It wasn't really financial. People making financial decisions on whether they should buy stock with this company or not was influenced by the breakfast that they had that morning. Diet and nutrition actually can determine whether someone has aggressive action under certain circumstances or whether the person will not be aggressive under those circumstances. It's been shown that the amino acids in the blood 
and the amino acids that bathe the brain affect the decisions that we're going to be making. Whether we're talking about the effect of uh, glutamate or the effect of, uh, of uh, dopamine and serotonin and the amino acids, tryptophan and uh, tyrosine, these all influence what we're going to be doing and the decisions that we'll be making later on. So here we have uh, something that is, is tangible, yes, the breakfast that you have, and then we have something that's intangible. The intangibility is the decisions that we're going to make and the actions that we will take because of it. Differential levels of prefrontal cortex glutamate and glutamine in adults with antisocial personality disorder. In other words, even our relationship with other people can be influenced by the food that we eat and the biochemical effects of, those, of that food. Think about that. This is looking at, it's called eating to deer. Nutrition impacts humans' risk decision. The, your ability or your desire to make a choice that involves certain risk to you can be impacted by the food that you have eaten. Perhaps even road rage. Perhaps even rioting and looting might be affected by what the people are eating. I don't want to get too preachy. <laughs> but think about that. Omega-3 fats play part in this whole uh, symphony, if you will, of biochemicals. So we have the amino acids, and uh, we even have uh, the proportion of proteins compared to carbohydrates. And of course, all carbohydrates are not created equal, and all proteins are not created equal. So maybe there's something about which proteins you have, the source of those proteins, and which carbohydrates, whether it's carbohydrates with the natural fiber that it contains or whether it's processed carbohydrate, all of these questions are being asked now by researchers trying to find out how we might be able to manipulate the diet to be able to produce better outcomes. This is a simple diagram that I, I, I kind of put together here, to looking, at, looking at how food can affect decisions. You see, on the left, we have... Uh, a simple decision, a yes-no decision, and depending on the ratio of uh, protein to carbohydrate in the diet would mean we move from that continuum of no or yes to no or no to yes. Also, the duration of time between the, when we eat and when we're actually making the decision in question. But it's not just about decisions because decisions actually would lead to actions. So whether we choose yes or we choose no, it may imply that there's an action that we're going to take based on that decision, and that can have very grave consequences depending on the decision that we're making. But the plot thickens. Research has shown from the natural experiment in World War II that uh, pregnant women who experienced the famine actually had changes in their offspring compared to, to uh, women who were not pregnant but got pregnant after the famine was lifted. There was a difference in what happened with their kids 18 to 19 years later. Those who went through the famine, the kids had high impulsiveness. They had more altercations with the law. They were lawbreakers more frequently. They had more aggressive behavior, and they had problems with social interaction and social connection. The, the young people didn't do anything necessarily themselves, but it was correlated with whether or not mom went through the famine during World War II. Part of it, we might try to explain by the psychological effects, but now we know epigenetically that this is part of the process. The genes don't change, but the expressions of the, gene, of the genes change because of the famine and because of the food that was eaten or not eaten. Violence is associated with food. 
there are multiple studies in prisons looking at what happens when you supplement the impoverished diet that people use in the prisons with something that is more palatable, whether you supplement it with uh, amino acids, uh, with, uh, with minerals, with vitamins, and with essential fatty acids. These things make a difference in the aggressiveness and the amount of, uh, of violence that occurs in prisons and in detention centers around the world. There's a decrease in one study of over 30% in aggressive behavior in people who were just on, in three months of having a, a better diet while they were in prison. There's one study in Norway looking at children and what happens with those children when they eat uh, the, the, the typical uh, fast food uh, kinds of uh, high starch, high sugar, uh, high fat, and low fiber diets, the processed diet. These children had more aggression, uh, increased sadness, increased anxiety, and increased depression compared to others who didn't have that kind of dietary fear. So, women, when they're pregnant, they need to be careful not just with what they think, but also what they eat. Because what they eat may influence what's going to happen with that child later on. And there's evidence today that even what dad was eating, if dad was on a high-fat diet and dad was smoking and dad was not help, uh, healthy, then the sperm that he produces during the time uh, that, you know, within three months of the wife being, uh, becoming pregnant, that that will influence as well what happens with that child. I tell you. Now, <laughs> there's no <laughs> nutritional psychology, it's called, and nutritional psychiatry. It's translational research, taking what we have learned from the nutrition and utilizing it in people who have psychiatric conditions. There's a whole plethora of new studies looking at modifying people's mental illness by giving them good nutrition and personalizing the kind of nutrition that they might need because of the deficiencies that they may have or the style of eating that they have been accustomed to. Well, that shouldn't really surprise us even though for some it might. You see, there's a formula that God used in creating human beings. We have on the left, uh, man being made of two things, right? Dust and what? And breath, okay? So man, a living soul, a living being, okay, is a unique creature. This is something that's different from an animal or a plant or anything like that that we might also say is living. And that dust and water, the same word uh, could, could be translated clay. So that dust or that clay, right, mixed with the special ingredient called the breath of life or the breath of lives that God breathed into his nostril, produced not two things. It produced one thing, the new thing called a human being. It's like taking flour and yeast and water and salt and some uh, carbohydrate, mixing it together, putting some heat with it, and you end up with bread. After you have the bread, can you take the salt out? Can you take the water out? Can you take the flour? You can't do that. You can't take it out because now you have a new thing. It's called bread. Similarly, this mixture that God put together came out as human being. So the idea of, of making some kind of a dualism or some dichotomy in, uh, in human existence is, is a foreign idea to God the Greeks were the ones who popularized uh, that idea, but this is not uh, uh, original biblical Hebrew thinking. 
It's as if the breath, the special ingredient, is the operating system, the spiritual motor, if you will, for us. And, and, and the, the dust, the clay, uh, is like the hardware, right? But, but you know, if you have hardware and no software, you don't have anywhere. <laughs> and if you have software and no hardware, all you have is a disk or a... <laughs> you don't have anything. It's the combination of the things that produces the functional uh, uh, product. And within that context, we need to understand that out of that comes something else. Our mind is developed out of this. The whole human being has a mind, not just physical, not just spiritual, but also this mental component. The mind, if you will, is the interface between the physical and the spiritual. We don't know about God unless we have a mind. And we don't have a mind unless we have a brain. And the brain is physical. The mind is not. If we were to consider how the human brain is made up and then the effects of what we do, what we think, what we say, and the biochemistry of the whole situation, we now have a, a different model. Now, uh, this is just my approach uh, to this based on the information that I have and the research that has been done trying to look at this. The brain, of course, uh, is, is a physical structure. It has anatomy, but it also has physiology. And it, it works with, uh, with the biochemistry, with the neurochemistry, and also with the electricity, okay, of what's going on in the brain. This is, I'm not saying anything that's new for the physicians and health uh, people there. This is the biology of the brain. But, but we have cells and we have structure. The mind, we believe, comes out of the, the neural networking of these cells. We don't know what the mind is, but we know it exists. And we know that it, it is housed in the brain. And we know that if you don't have a brain, well, you don't have a mind. Mind does not exist in humans without a brain. But we know that there are things that will affect the chemistry of the brain. We can look at this as exochemicals, chemicals that come from outside. And we also have other chemicals, we can call them endochemicals, the metabolic soup that's associated with the things that we do and the physiological processes that we have. These things will affect the neurochemistry, the neurophysiology, and even the electrochemistry of what's going on in the brain. The things that come from the outside can be things that we eat, things that we do, things that, uh, that get absorbed in us through our diet, through drugs, through herbs, through pollutants, uh, things that, that get transferred through the skin. All of these will affect us. We have the whole idea now of the exposome, the things that we're, that we're exposed to during our whole life. And these things will affect our, our biochemistry. And I would uh, suggest that they also affect our neurochemistry. And then we have the endosystem, the things that are associated with our own physiology. For instance, whether I sleep or I don't sleep, whether I exercise or don't exercise, whether I stand or I sit, all of these things will also affect me because they're producing new chemicals in the bodies. And these new chemicals will affect what is happening with the brain chemistry, and then that brain chemistry affects the body's chemistry, and the body's chemistry reflects back and might change the brain. So whether we have love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of these things can be reduced to biochemical activity. But it's not just biochemistry. We can't make a human being unless we go through the process that God has given us on how to make human beings. So we're not just a bag of biochemicals. It is an association, a putting together that God has done to make us in his image and in his likeness. And so the mind is like this, this, uh, this conduit between the physical and the spiritual. So when we say body, mind, and spirit, 
we're actually talking about one thing, but the way we get to the spiritual is through our mental. And so, there's a little schematic to try to approach. Of course, it's much, much more complex than this. But whether we eat or drink or don't, exercise, sleep, fresh air, sunshine, all of these things are physical things that impact the body, the physical body. An extension of the physical body is the physical brain. So these things will affect the body, the body affects the brain, the brain affects the mind, and the mind is where we have our spiritual activity. Faith is in the mind, but faith becomes touchable because it is a reflection of what's going on in our bodies. Yes, this may not be an accurate diagram, but it reflects what might be going on in us. You see, our biochemistry and what we do to create that biochemistry, how the decisions that we make and how we choose and what we have been taught by our culture, by our parents, etc. These things can affect the person. But we have a relationship, a vertical relationship with God, and that's affected by our biochemistry. We have a, a relationship with other people, and that's affected too by our biochemistry, as I showed. We have a relationship with the animate and inanimate objects that were created as well, and these things are affected by our biochemistry. And we have a relationship with ourselves, and that too is affected by our biochemistry. We can be selfish or unselfish. In this study, they were looking at spirituality and healthy lifestyle behavior. And what they showed was that for the most part, it wasn't, it wasn't a perfect study that showed everything that we would like for it to show, but uh, stress was counterbalanced by well-being and making good choices on the part of older adults. Spirituality, we posit, will have a definite effect on how we approach COVID-19 and what we do with it. And as uh, physicians and other healthcare workers, we can have a part to play as, uh, as Brian was talking about it last night. We have a part to play because we have the opportunity to introduce people who are fearful and suffering with regard to COVID to introduce to them something that is essential. It is an essential part of us. And to withhold that is like withholding good medicine. We can't do that. We must be able to share in the most appropriate and unoffensive way with people about the reality that their biochemistry even affects the way they think about God and their perception of having or not having hope for the future. You see, our spiritual life affects our total health. Our total health affects our physical health. Our physical health affects our brain chemistry. Our brain chemistry affects our mental health, and our mental health then reflects back on our spiritual life. It's a beautiful system, and I am just trying to, uh, to understand this, and hopefully you are getting a better understanding of it too. The brain is involved with our spiritual health, and while I cannot say with any uh, definite surety, and that's why I have these question marks there, I don't know how much the influence of how we eat, what we drink, uh, unless, of course, it's uh, toxic substances, what they would have on what happens with us. You see, it's not that it may be that we can go from right to left, from physical health to spiritual health. I believe it is a reality, but I don't have all of the evidence yet. But I think it's something that we should think about. Is it realistic to think? 
in the same way that earlier people did not know that our spiritual life affected our physical life, that we're in the stage right now of being able to talk about the physical life definitely affecting our spiritual life. But now it's not a disclaimer. We have to make the claim. It does not mean that because what we do and what we eat and what we drink can influence our spiritual life, that we believe that there's righteousness by works. No. <laughs> we do these things because we believe, because we are saved, out of gratitude, out of joy, not out of a sense of abject obligation. We don't do this to be saved. We do it because we have a loving Savior who has shared with us his grace and his mercy. And now he invites us to an abundant life in him. And that abundant life is not just physical. It's not just mental. It's not just social. It's spiritual. So there's no righteousness, no salvation by works, no salvation by health habits, no salvation by exercise, and certainly no righteousness by veggie burger, even though I eat veggie burgers from time to time, okay? There's only salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, amen? God speaks. At the beginning, I asked, are we, are we willing to hear? Now I can declare, let's renew our minds because God invites us to do this. And may his mind be in us, that mind that also was in Jesus Christ. May this be our experience as we look at the science, because God is a God of science. Thank you very much. Faith has become touchable, and ideas have consequences. I pray that the ideas that we shared this morning will have a ripple effect in the decisions that we make, the actions that we take, and how we approach not just our own living, but the living of our patients, our families, our friends, and even how we approach our enemies. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.